thing else that was good taken away from him. So, <clears throat> he is a man who overcame a great deal, a great deal of adversity, and is a man who is going to be in the kingdom of God ruling the nations of Israel. So he's a good one for us to listen to. We're in a world that is becoming more and more insecure in every way as every day and week goes by. More people losing jobs, more economic distress, uh, agricultural lack of production, uh, war, all kinds of things now are coming into the mix <clears throat> that make life more difficult and more fearful. And those fears are very much validated by the trouble and distress that people are having. Many are dying <clears throat> in wars. Many are dying as a result of all kinds of crimes, murders against them. Many are dying of starvation. As we sit here today well-fed, there are many people on the earth who don't have food. And it's getting up in the millions who die every year from malnutrition and lack of food. And that is going to very shortly become much, much worse, and it will affect this country as well. So I want to examine some psalms today to see some of the solution <clears throat> to the fears that they around us have and that we ourselves might have. Security is one of the biggest issues with a human being. They want to be secure about job, family, marriage, uh, food, air, water. We, we want to feel comfortable. We want to feel like everything is under control, that we don't have anything to worry about. But that has not generally been the state of man through the last 6,000 years, and it is quickly going the other direction and getting worse by the day. Let's start in Psalm 25. I could have picked almost anywhere in the Psalms to begin this because they're so full of it, so we'll just hit some highlights. Psalm 25, I want to begin in verse 13, <clears throat> or verse 12. What man is he that fears the eternal? Him shall he teach in the way that he shall choose. If a man fears God, God himself has said, I will teach that man in the way that I choose, in the way that that man should choose. Now, what greater teacher could you have than God himself, who knows everything, knows everything about you, and cares more about you than anyone else? And he's the one who said, if you will fear me, I will be your teacher. His soul shall dwell at ease, and his seed shall inherit the earth. Now, ease means security, doesn't it? You are at ease. You are not worried. You are not frustrated, not concerned. <clears throat> and your seed will inherit the earth, which means your children will be taken care of and also have security and live in lack of fear and rule the earth. Or not necessarily rule there, but inherit it. Speaking, I think, in, pro in prophecy of the millennium. <clears throat> the secret of the eternal is with them that fear him. God has secrets. And he shares those secrets 
only with those who fear Him. When we set our hearts, we set our minds to look to God, to trust Him, to believe in Him and have faith that He will take care of us, then He begins to reveal His secrets to us more and more and more. We understand more of the mystery of God, what He is about, what He is doing, and what His purpose is for mankind. And He will show them His covenant. So somewhere in your life, you began to look to God to one degree or another, and as you then were educated, you began to understand what His covenant was. A covenant of life, life eternal. No more tears, no more fears, no more tragedy, no more depression, frustration. Those things will all go away ultimately. That's the covenant He has offered us and the covenant we have accepted. My eyes are ever toward the eternal, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. I'll always look to God. If I get caught in the net, he's the one that can bring me out of it. So we'll begin to see, then, the solutions to fear. How you get away from it, how you absolve it, resolve it, dissolve it, so that it goes away. He will take your feet out of the net. Turn you to me and have mercy upon me, for I am desolate and afflicted. So David gives us a little look into his heart here. He does it all through the Psalms, but in this Psalm particularly, I am desolate and afflicted. Sometimes we feel alone, we feel desolate, we feel afflicted, troubled, hurt. And he asks God to turn to him. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. O bring you me out of my distresses. Look upon my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. He he realized and revealed that his pain and trouble and discomfort came from his sinful way of thinking and acting. And he wanted that resolved. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with a cruel hatred. O keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Now, we're going to face enemies in the same way that David did, only it is going to be worse. This time the whole world will hate us with a cruel hatred and wish to see us blotted off the face of the earth. So this is not just personal. This is prophecy that David is writing and has been brought forward down to us. So while he was suffering grievously himself, he imparted to us the wisdom of the ages. Here's where to look. Here's what you do when you have trouble. Oh, keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let, let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Israel now is going into trouble. Spiritual Israel, the church, has already been up to their ears in trouble. And we need redemption now. But that's where David looked for a solution to his problems and his fears. Was to God. Let's go to 27, verse 1. The eternal is my light 
and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? God provides the light to see. A lot of people are afraid of darkness, aren't they? They don't want to go out in the dark. They're afraid the boogeyman or whatever out there is going to get them. They don't have usually much to fear, but they like light. You, you, you like it to be able to see where not only are you going, but what's out there that might get you. God is our light and our salvation. He is the one that provides the luminescence or the illumination of what's going on in the world and of where it all will lead. And He will guide us and lead us. Whom then shall we fear? What is there to fear? If you know God is leading you and guiding you and making a light for your path, then what do you have to fear? Now, you don't have to fear someone out there in the dark, but often there are things around you might stumble over and hurt yourself. So you fear that. When I walk home, usually after new moon study, there's things out here between me and my back door. If I forget to turn on the back light, uh, you know, I could run into the windmill or the chicken coop or a tree or, or something. So I walk a little gingerly, and sometimes I'll even kind of hold out my hands so that whatever I might be about to stumble on, I'll hit with that instead of my head first. Now, there are those in this world who say they are the Illuminati, the ones who will illumine the way and show us the way to world peace and happiness and lack of fear. But God says He's the one who will illumine the way. He is our light. Don't look to them, look to Him. When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. One thing have I desired of the eternal, that will I, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the eternal all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the eternal, and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion, in the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me, he shall set me upon a rock. Well, that's a prophecy uh, of a time when God is going to protect his people in a pavilion and upon a rock, in a time of great trouble on the earth. So God would provide for him, and he did die in his own bed, in spite of all the people who tried to kill him throughout his life. God was his rock. God was his protector. David could have been killed a multitude of times. But God delivered him. Chapter 23, or 33, excuse me. 33, verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Eternal. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Whatever God says is ironclad. It will happen. We can count on that. Now, you can deal with people... And they might make you all kinds of promises, right? 
But how do you know they will fulfill those? How do you know they'll carry through? Most of us have been burned at some time in life many, many times by being let down by people. Men that we would maybe want to marry who said they would take care of us and didn't. Men who said, I'll give you a job and it's yours, and then they take it away. We get betrayed and let down constantly by people, by our governments, by anyone who is human, who cannot live up to their word or will not live up to it for whatever reason. They betray, they defraud, they stab in the back. You can't trust them. Don't put your trust in man. There's not a minister alive who can save you and what is about to come. I certainly can't. I pray that I'm accounted worthy to escape what's coming. Only God can see you through it. And for a man to stand up in the churches of God today and say everything will be all right if you just stay in my group or follow me, how can he live up to that promise? It's between you and God is where it is, and your relationship with him. And David is showing a very personal relationship here with his Father in heaven. It is God we must trust. All right, let's go on to uh, verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Eternal is upon them that fear Him, upon them that hope in His mercy. Now, there's a lot of people down here, about six and a half billion. Now, God does not have His eye on all of them in the same way that He has it upon those who fear Him. His eye is upon this world at this point for evil. And His eye has been upon the church for evil, turning His face away and letting evil befall us. Now, some are going to turn around and respond with fear of God. Have you read Lamentations lately? About how God says, I did this to you, over and over and over, there in chapter 2, all through the book, but in chapter 2 especially, he says it, what, two or three dozen times? I'm the one that did all this to you, speaking to the church. We were not fearing him enough. We were getting involved with the world too much. And as a result, God said, I'm going to blow you apart, and I will see who will turn to me. But so many turned the other way, didn't they? They just gave up and said, well, this must not be so. They went another direction. God wanted to know who would do what. Now, I think you here, for the most part, turned the right direction. But now we have to finish the course. We have to continue to look to God as things worsen in the world. And see that He is the one that can deliver us out of it. No one else can. Uh, chapter 49. 
let's see, verse, let's start with four. We could pick it up at the beginning, but. I will incline my ear to a parable. I will open my dark saying upon the harp. David says, I'm going to listen to things that might be a bit hard to understand. I'm going to try to figure it out. I'll open my dark saying upon the harp. I'll maybe play the harp. Uh, I'll sit and think and meditate and come up with some right answers. Wherefore should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity of my heels shall compass me about? Why should I fear, he says. They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. I already really covered this principle. For the redemption of their soul is precious, precious and it ceases forever, that he should still live forever and not see corruption. For he sees that wise men die, likewise the fool and the brutish person perish and leave their wealth to others. So a lot of people think if they're wealthy, it will solve their problems and remove all their fears. They don't fear whether they can pay the mortgage. They don't fear whether they can buy food. They don't fear whether they can go to Hawaii for a vacation or not. <laughs> Something to fear, isn't it? Their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. People like to get wealthy and then make foundations and put their name on them. Museums and name them after themselves. Or if they learn to build cars, they want to put their name on it. Chrysler or Ford or Chevrolet or Packard or whatever their name is. They want their name on these things. It says in Isaiah 45, I believe, the people will begin to surname themselves after Jacob and look to God and his name. That's right in the time we're talking about right now, just as Cyrus begins to show up and the end time prophecies are about to be fulfilled. It's going to be turned around. The wealthy of this world will not name things after themselves anymore because they're headed for shame and suffering, ignominy, and slavery. And you're not going to name yourself after that, are you? Then the sum will begin to repent and look to Israel and to God. And that is the desired effect. Nevertheless, man being in honor abides not. He is like the beast that felt that uh, perish. So looking to God is the answer. Looking to wealth or anything else on this earth isn't going to help you at all. There are a lot of big bank accounts that are about to be emptied. Psalm 52, verse 6. The righteous also shall see and fear, and shall laugh at him. Laugh at the tongue that devises iniquity and hatred and malice and loves evil more than good is what is being talked about here in the first few verses of this psalm. But the righteous are going to see the wicked, and they're going to laugh. Lo, this is the man that made not God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. We will be able 
to laugh. I don't think in vengeance. I don't think in derision. But if we trust God and are protected, you can laugh in a way at what a simple solution that is and how people denied it and suffered. Isn't it simple, really? Just trust God with your health and your wealth, your family, everything there is. Just put it on Him. Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you, as Paul puts it. And then not worrying. Simple solution. Very, very hard to accomplish. Because we like to worry. We like to fret. Why do we like that? It isn't any fun, is it? I wish I didn't worry so much, people will say. Well, quit. Repent of it. Leave it on God. But we have trouble turning loose and putting it on God, don't we? That's where the rub comes. That's where the difficulty arises. Some of you have spent a lot of hours, days, weeks, months, and years, worrying about things that never happened, haven't you? So have I. The only problem is we've worried about a few things that did happen. And that makes it very, very difficult for us to turn loose and put it on God. But that's what we need to do. They trust their strength their wickedness and so on. But David says, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise you forever because you have done it. And I will wait on your name for it is good before your saints. Now he had learned some very hard lessons. He had trusted people in his kingdom, trusted people in his family, and they betrayed him. Even the sons of his own household tried to have him killed, stole his wives, did all kinds of things against him. His own sons. And he had begun to realize, maybe had pretty well realized by this point in his life when he wrote this, that you can't trust anybody. You'd better find God. Now, he had known God from childhood. And yet, he still had a great deal to learn as he went through life, just as we do. All right, let's see. Let's go to 53. Uh, verse 3, Every one of them has gone back, those who would not seek God. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that does good, no, not one. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread? They have not called upon God. My enemies don't know God. They do their own thing. There were they in great fear where no fear was. For God has scattered the bones of him that encamps against you. You have put them to shame because God has despised them. He had learned that you can depend upon God and he has the power to take care of all your enemies, to take care of all your problems. Now, we can look to people to take care of them, 
And in some cases, they might want to help us. But they're very limited, aren't they? God knows all, sees all, and He can fix anything. We admire someone who can fix things, don't we? Some of you are pretty talented at fixing things. Well, God can fix anything. You would think that our feeling toward God would be empowered by that. That we'd look to Him. Oh, that the salvation of Israel will come out of Zion. When God brings back the captivity of His people, Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. We're still living in this time when deliverance has not fully come toward us, where God has begun to fully bless in the way that He will. But He says, fear Him, don't worry about it, don't fear what's around you, and I will regather you. That gathering is getting, I think, very close, because the gathering storm in the world is about to be unleashed. Well, that takes three months or three years, I don't know. I'm not here to try to determine that. But it's becoming very ominous, and time is short for us to draw near to God and quit fearing this world that is around us. Some very powerful lessons here. Uh, 56.4 In God I will praise His word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do to me. There he encapsulates it very nicely. I'll trust God. I won't fear what man can do. Every day they rest my words. All their thoughts are against, against me for evil. They gather themselves together. They hide themselves. They mark my steps when they wait for my soul. They'd hide and try to ambush him. They tried all kinds of ploys to destroy David. Shall they escape by iniquity? In your anger cast down the people, O God. Now we're going to have enemies rise against us who will do anything they can to kill us in the future. Can we truly trust God? He says if we will obey Him and fear Him, He will take care of us. Verse 8, you tell my wanderings. God can, was following David around. He could tell. He could remember wherever he had wandered. Put you my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? David says, you see where my feet go. You see the tears that I cry over the troubles and tribulations that I face. Please put them in a bottle. You know, we might want to wipe someone's tear with a Kleenex, with our finger. David said, put my tears in a bottle. Carry it around. See my tears, God. Understand my distress. Write them in your book. When I cry to you, then shall my enemies turn back. This I know. This I know. He had come to believe that God cared enough about him that he would be willing to put his tears in a bottle and in a book, and that when his enemies came, God would take care of him. Now, we fear sometimes because our lives have not been what they ought to be. 
Our thoughts have not been what they should be. We have consciences that bother us about this, that, or the other thing. And we still have weaknesses and sins and faults, don't we? So it makes it hard to trust and have faith in God. But consider this. David had probably sinned as much or more than any of us here. Maybe more than any, all of us combined, for all I know. He was really good at it. But he believed in the forgiveness and the mercy of God. And he believed that when he repented, his sins were wiped away, and that he was made clean and fresh and pure, as Psalm uh, 51 shows, after his great sin. And he knew that God would take care of him. And this is downstream a little bit from that repentance in Psalm 51. So, no matter what he had done, what he had been, once he turned to God, he could trust God. And he said, I know he's with me. God says that he will be with those who obey him and serve him. And it is your and my desire to turn to God, to look to Him, to obey Him. And we try, and we fail sometimes, but we work at it. And with that should be a growing confidence in your mind, in your heart, that God will take care of you. He's promised that. It doesn't make any difference what happens out there in the world. It doesn't make any difference what Satan can do. Now, God turned Satan loose on Job specifically. You can do anything to him but kill him. That gave Satan a lot of latitude. And his family was killed. His wealth was wiped away, his flocks and his herds. And then he had boils from stem to stern. And a wife that said, you might as well curse God and die. Thanks for the encouragement, sweetheart. But he knew God could deliver him. He changed some attitudes, and God delivered. He healed him. He helped him. His wife changed her attitude. They had a bunch more kids. Now, you say, well, he suffered some loss. Yes, he did. But he got him closer to God and helped him understand God better, and Job's going to see those kids again. So they're not lost. Now, there was some pain and misery and sense of loss when they died. But God was working with Job, wasn't he? And he knew he was going to make it all right. And in the future, he'll make all of it right, not just that part that was... I mean, yeah, these kids all die and you have a bunch more. That doesn't take care of your emotional problem about those that are gone. It helps assuage the problem, but it doesn't resolve it. But God is going to make resolution of it because he just saw Job's life from the beginning to not the end, but beyond the end of it in the world tomorrow. Job learned what he needed to learn. He stood in awe of God after all this experience with Satan. Total and utter awe of God. And that's what the last three verse, chapters of Job are all about is the awe that he came to feel toward his Creator. took a lot of trouble for that to be established, didn't it? 
So we wonder why we go through trials, troubles, tribulations, difficulties, and, and so on. That's to teach us the fear of God. Because we recognize that those things come from Him. That He said He will put them or allow them to happen to us. Put them on us or allow them to happen. And that is a teaching tool. To teach us, turn away from trusting in anything in this world and trust me because I am the one who have all the answers. Why is it that people, when they have problems, go to somebody with the same problem and commiserate but not resolve the problem? They can feel for each other, but you've got to solve the problem. And if you go to somebody that has the same problem, the chances of them being able to help you overcome it are pretty slim in most cases. Go to someone who has solved the problem. There you might get some help. But we don't want a solution sometimes as much as we want sympathy and a shoulder to cry on. Now, there's a time for that. Don't get me wrong. We do need to be able to lean on each other and get help from each other and emotional support from each other. There's nothing wrong with that. But what I'm trying to get across is go to someone who can really solve it. And God is the only one who can really solve everything. Now, if somebody is trying to help you solve a problem you have, what is their best advice? Go get yourself a self-help book. Uh, listen to Dr. Phil or Oprah. No. If they're really going to help you, they're going to say, get your Bible out, get on your knees, turn to God, and look for the answer in here because there's not a problem that a human being has that doesn't have its answer in these pages, I'll guarantee you. But we'll look anywhere but here given a chance, won't we? Now, that doesn't mean we can't get a little help on the technical things from somebody in the world or from each other. But the biggest way you and I can help each other is to point each other to this Word and to God. That's, that's the most help you can give right there. Why did David spend his time writing all this? Because he'd learned the hard way, and he wanted us to pay attention to God in heaven. Because he knew, and all the troubles he went through, there wasn't any other solution to the problem. Uh, let's go to chapter 60. Here he's speaking, not only to Israel, but to us. O God, you have cut us off. You have scattered us. You have been displeased. O turn yourself to us again. How many times have I, have you, prayed those very words? Whether we were reading this psalm or not, we prayed those thoughts. Maybe not in exactly the same words, but pretty close. You have made the earth to tremble. You have broken it. Heal the branches thereof, for it shakes. The whole system of human life on this earth is now in trembling and shaking and in the next few years, if God does not intervene, there will no flesh be saved alive. Everyone will die. That's where it's headed. You have showed your people hard things. You have made us to drink the wine of astonishment. 
You have given us a banner to them that fear you, that it may be displayed because of the truth. Now God says the whole world is trembling and shaking, and even we have been scattered, and yet you've given us a banner. You've given us something to fly before the whole world. To hoist up like you do a flag, a banner. To say, here is God. Here is where God is working. Here is peace. Here is safety. Why do nations fly a flag? They want to show their sovereignty. They want to show their people that they do not fear as long as they pledge allegiance to their flag, whichever one it may be, because that flag represents their power, their authority, their strength, their ability to take care of their people. All the flags of the nations are about to be knocked down, and the only banner that's going to be any good is the one that God gives us to fly before the whole world. He does not want us to duck and run into a rock and hide, at least not now. He wants us to be a light set up on a hill with a banner or a flag flying, the flag of God, to show that He gives us sovereignty and protection and peace and happiness and joy. That's the only place that it will exist upon the face of this earth. Why? That your beloved may be delivered, saved with your right hand, and hear me. God has spoken in His holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and meet out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is his, the strength of my head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom will I cast out my shoe. Verse 9, Who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me into Edom? Will not you, O God, which had cast us off, and you, O God, which did not go out with our armies? Give us help from trouble. For vain is the help of man. Through God we shall do valiantly, for he it is that shall tread down our enemies. There's the answer to what's coming. Jeremiah talks about being valiant for the truth. If we are valiant for God, then he will do valiantly, and he is going to lead us out of the troubles that are to come. Now, I talk about those troubles, don't I, quite a bit. We read prophecies about things that are coming. We talk about world news and world events and how things are coming apart. And I hope we are not discouraged by all that. But today, we're reading the solution to all that. It's out there. It's real. It's coming. So you need the solution. You need to know how to fix it. What it will take. And he is the one that where we must look to solve the problems that are coming. Psalm 61. Hear my cry, O God. Attend to my prayer. Please hear me. From the end of the earth will I cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. We could read the rest of that. I don't think I will for sake of time, but this is all very, very pertinent in here. Chapter 66. Let's go down to about verse 15 or 16. Come and hear all you that fear God. 
Come, here, listen. All of you who will fear God, David is saying, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. I honored him, praised him, glorified him. I extolled him. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Eternal will not hear me. There's a problem. We can give God lip service, but if we ponder iniquity and doing the wrong things in our heart, then He says God won't hear us. But verily or truly, God has heard me. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, which has not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. Now, did David contemplate evil? Did David get involved in evil? Yes, he did, just like the rest of us have. So he feared. It bothered him. He worried whether God would hear him or not. But then he concluded that God is a merciful God. And that God forgave him and heard his cry in spite of himself. And that's where we often find ourselves, looking to God, having to repent, having to ask for forgiveness and mercy. And He does. And He gives us a new opportunity every morning when the sun comes up. The sun does not set on His anger. His, own, his anger only continues day to day because we continue to sin day to day. But when we set our hearts to repent, then He will show mercy. So our relationship with God has to be right. That's what really counts. So that even when we have fouled up, we can go to Him and ask for forgiveness and mercy and help, and He's willing to grant it. Chapter 85. Lord, You have been favorable to Your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. Now there's a prophecy. Uh, the church he has not brought back the captivity of yet. He is going too soon. And Israel is about to go into captivity physically, but will be pulled out of it once Christ returns to the earth. So this is prophetic. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. That's why Christ came to this earth, to shed his blood that our sin could be covered. So this prophecy had to reach as far as his sacrifice, didn't it? Because all our sin was not covered until Christ died and had his blood shed for us. And it has been a continual sacrifice ever since. You have taken away all your wrath. You have turned yourself from the fierceness of your anger. Turn us, O God, of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Sometimes it seemed that way since the church broke up. It just like, you know, when's this going to end? And it keeps going on and on. Will you draw out your anger to all generations? Is this thing going to ever end or just go on generation after generation? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Well, this shows an attitude of people who are at least beginning to look to God and look to Him for the answer, Okay? They still have their troubles, but they know at this point where to turn, where to go. Now, getting there fully so that we worship God with our whole heart is difficult. 
But here's a people crying out, asking that their tears be put in a bottle and in a book. But God won't forget our tears and our frustrations. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, O Eternal, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what God the Eternal will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints, but let them not turn again to folly. We were lackadaisical. We were imbibing too much of this world into our lives and our minds and hearts. And he blew us apart. And now he's drawing us back out. And he says, don't turn to your folly again. Don't go back there. And yet most of the church, brethren, I'm sad to report, and you see with your own eyes, are going right back to those things that caused God to spew them out in the first place. Now, you and I were spewed along with them. But let us now turn to God with our hearts and be delivered. Surely His salvation is near them that fear Him, that glory may dwell in our land. Now, He's told us He will come and fill the temple with glory in Ezekiel. He said He'll come with dwell and dwell with us in Zechariah 2, right here at the end time, before he returns to the earth in power. He's promised to do that. And it will be with those who fear him, instead of fearing what is around them. Mercy and truth are met together. When mercy and truth come together, the effect is good. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Righteousness leads to peace. Truth shall spring out of the earth. That may be a very literal thing as well as figurative. The truth about history and some of the things that have occurred in the past that has been lost and covered over is going to spring out of the earth. And righteousness shall look down from heaven. So there is a figurative side of that, but I would not be surprised if there's also a literal side of it as well. Yes, the eternal shall give that which is good, and our land shall yield her increase. Because he'll give us the Garden of Eden and the Garden of God, Isaiah 51. Righteousness shall go out before him, and shall set us in the way of his steps. So this is really... The next-to-last fulfillment of the Scripture is what he will do with the church in the next few years. And then the final fulfillment of it is the millennium of Christ on this earth for a thousand years. Well, I say final. Even the great white throne judgment has to be added to that because all those people who've lived on this earth from Adam until today and seen misery and suffering and war and been killed in war and disease and famine and all kinds of problems that they faced in their lives are going to come up in that resurrection and also see peace and righteousness springing up out of the earth. God has a solution for everybody. You know some of your relatives who have lived and died and you've seen them go through all kinds of problems. You've seen them suffer with heart ailments and cancer and diabetes and sicknesses and have their lives just turned to absolute torture. You've seen some of your relatives maybe go through two or three or four or five divorces. You've seen their children turn against them. 
You've seen emotional upset and nothing but trouble and problems in families because they haven't lived the right way. That's all going to be solved. It's all going to be fixed. They will live again. And they will live under different circumstances with different laws and all those things that you wished you could have fixed for them. But you couldn't. Tragic deaths. All kinds of problems. Babies born, dying. Will get fixed. And all those tears will be wiped away. Because God is God. How much do you believe that? Down to your toenails, I hope. Because you're going to need God and what is coming. And very few people know God. You are among the absolute most blessed people on the face of this earth if you know the true God of heaven and earth. And why are we so stubborn and stiff-necked but we still want to be selfish, self-centered, greedy, and do things our way. It's amazing, isn't it? How deceitful and desperately wicked the human heart and mind is. But even when we know, we have trouble. But looking to Him is the only way to make our lives, our attitudes pliant, humble, meek, and accepting, willing to go his way, and then willing to accept his blessings. Let's go to 103. Psalm 103. Uh, pick it up about verse 13. Uh, let's, let's read 12, too. I quote this from Isaiah sometimes. As far as the east is from the west, so far has removed our transgressions from us. Now, our transgressions came up to him like a stench. But he is going to forgive when we turn to him. He'll turn his face back to us, and he'll remove our sins as far as they can be removed. How far is the east from the west? Totally different directions that go on and on. So, complete removal is signified here. And not only will forgive it, he'll forget about it. Something you can push way off to the east or way off to the west, out of sight, becomes out of mind. Like as a father pities his children, so the eternal pities them that fear him. When you're a little child, think back in your life, got hurt, had an accident, fell, cut themselves, banged their head, whatever. Remember the pity, the soft emotional feelings you had inside for that child? I remember my daughter one time, uh, she must not have been over three years old, climbed up on a ladder a step or two, fell off, or out of a tree, I guess it was, and broke her arm. And she's standing there, crying, with tears running down her cheeks. Daddy, Daddy, it hurts. And I melted inside, you know. I feel like crying right now, just talking about it. My poor little daughter, hurting that bad. Took her and had a cast put on it, 
winced when they jerked it into place. That's my little girl you're jerking on. It hurts. Now that's the kind of feeling God says He has for the people who fear Him. You want God's sympathy, His feelings, His emotions to put your tears in a bottle? Fear Him. And He will do that. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Sometimes I'm almost overwhelmed, brethren, when I realize how weak and human I am and how great and powerful and wonderful and how much in control of his own feelings and emotions God is. And I feel like it's almost impossible to be like him. That the gulf is so vast. But how in the world could we ever measure up? But take heart in that he knows our frame. He remembers that we're just dust, just human. Christ came and lived 33 and a half years on this earth and suffered in all points and was tempted in all points like as we are. He went through all the human emotions and feelings and temptations and desires and everything that we go through that is not good or right or helpful. He didn't miss any of it. He went through all of it. And he is our high priest our mediator before our Father in heaven. And he remembers what he went through. He remembers how hard it was. That even he, as God in the flesh, had the exact same feelings you and I experience, deal with, live with, and try to get through and overcome. He knows what we are. He does not forget it. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. That's what he tells us in Isaiah 40 is the message here at the end time. Cry out to Israel that the man is as grass. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. If you don't set up a tombstone, it isn't very long, nobody would know you were there. And even if you do... It often gets removed over time, and they, then they don't know. It's just like you were never there. I remember my grandfather, my grandmothers, my grandfathers and grandmothers, my aunts and my uncles. I remember my great-grandmother even. But her mother, I don't have a clue. Don't have a clue. Don't know what she did. Don't know how she lived. Don't know what her fears, her hopes, her dreams were, except that we're all human and they're all about the same, but, you know, just gone. People want to look into the past about their ancestors. Well, you might even find who married who, who married who, and who married who, but you don't know anything about them. You can only know a name. It doesn't mean anything. I've walked through cemeteries sometimes, reflecting, and here's... John Jones, born 1813, died 1853, or whatever. What was he like? Who was he? 
All I have is man died young. How? Why? What? What did he go through in life? What did he experience? I don't know. God remembers it all. He's going to take care of that man, whoever he is and whoever he was. Verse 17, But the mercy of the Eternal is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear Him, and His righteousness to children's children, to such as keep His covenant, and to those that remember His commandments to do them. We fear Him and keep His commandments. He will remember us from everlasting to everlasting. He'll take care of us. We're in His book. 111. Maybe going over the same information here over and over gets tiresome or boring. I don't know, but God sure wrote a lot of it, didn't He? Why? Because we need a lot of underpinning. We need a lot of strengthening. We need a lot of repetition so that we might get the picture and continually learn. Chapter 111, let's go to verse 5. He has given meat to them that fear Him. Given food, both physical and spiritual, to those that fear Him. He will ever be mindful of His covenant. We made a covenant with Him. We were baptized and agreed to go His way and trust Him to take care of us, didn't we? Now, sometimes we forget that covenant. Sometimes we go our own way instead of His way. But He never forgets the covenant. He has showed His people the power of His works, that He may give them the heritage of the heathen. He's going to let us rule the whole earth. This is a prophecy as well. And He's going to give us power and strength even here in the end time and make us a powerful new threshing machine so that our enemies will be threshed before us, even before Christ returns. The works of His hands are truth and judgment. All His commandments are sure. You don't have to doubt it, you know. The people in this world today, they, they try to have a moral compass. They try to have a standard they live by, they devise their own way of living, their own way of reacting. But they don't know whether it's a good way or not. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. They can think, boy, this must be a good way to go. But it leads to death. Their governments, their educational institutions, everything they do, they think, This looks like a good way, but it doesn't work out. So they experiment with this, with that, with the other thing. The generation that went through finding themselves, they were lost. They had seen the society around them not give them the answers they needed in life. So they looked for themselves. They haven't found themselves yet. Still looking. Old hippies never die. They just keep looking, I guess. The commandments of God are sure. They stand. They work. 
They stand fast forever and ever, and they are done in truth and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and reverend is his name. His way of life, even though it seems foreign to the carnal, human, iniquitous mind, is the right way to live, and it will produce peace and happiness and joy if done right. The fear of the eternal is the beginning of wisdom. Now, we have people out in this world who are looked upon as wise, looked upon as knowing what's going on. We just had a man who is in the middle of trying to destroy this country named as the man of the year by Time magazine. We had another given a Nobel Peace Prize who has done nothing to bring peace to the earth and is in fact bringing misery and suffering upon our people and will upon all people. They are looked upon as wise, but they have no wisdom. They are fools. God tells us in Isaiah 44, about the third from the last verse, that He will make the wisdom of this world look foolish what he's about to do. If you want true wisdom, wisdom that counts, wisdom that means something, it isn't the wisdom of this world, and I didn't mean to single out individuals necessarily, uh, because they're all that way. All the wisdom of this world, whether the leaders or those further down or wherever they might be, if they're depending on the system and the way of man, it's foolish. It won't last. The fear of the eternal is where wisdom begins. When you start fearing God's law and His way and His retribution, if we go the wrong way, then you're beginning to kind of get a little smart. A good understanding have all they that do His commandments. His praise endures forever. Now, there are some who claim that His commandments are good, that they ought to be kept. But that's only lip service. And even if you understand that God's commandments are to be kept, unless you actually start keeping them, it doesn't matter. Your life is still a mess. It is only those who do His commandments that begin to get understanding and wisdom. His praise endures forever. Um, all right, let's go to another book. Just a few here. Uh, to Proverbs. We could have continued a long time in Psalms. There's so much more there. I just picked out some. Proverbs 10, verse 27. The fear of the eternal prolongs days, but the years of the wicked shall be shortened. So knowing, understanding, fearing, and keeping God's ways leads toward long life. But wickedness is going to shorten life. It can shorten it eternally, not just physically. So there's a correlation there. Chapter 14, verse 26. In the fear of the eternal is strong confidence, 
and his children shall have a place of refuge. We're in a world coming apart. In the fear of God is strong confidence. And our children will have a place of refuge if we fear God from the gathering storm. They'll have a place to go. We want our children protected. We worry and are concerned sometimes about our children. We need not worry. Just trust and fear God, and they will be taken care of. He promises us that. We worry about things we don't need to worry about. What is strong confidence all about? He says the righteous are as bold as a lion. Lions are pretty bold. They're not really afraid of much of anything. They'll attack a man with a gun. Now, they learn a bit of wisdom sometimes, and they'll try to avoid a man with a gun, but there comes a time when they just throw fear to the wind and attack anyway. And that's the kind of confidence that God says His obedient servants will have. We will not fear, brethren, when all this trouble comes down. We are going to be as strong and confident and bold as a lion. Are we there yet? God takes no pleasure in those who shrink back. Or as someone here says once in a while, if you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly. Why fool around being a panda bear? God wants us to be strong and bold. And that boldness is going to come from fear and obedience to Him and the confidence that is generated. It's when you're indecisive, you're not confident, you're a little afraid, or a lot afraid, that you come apart. But not when you feel the strength of Almighty God flowing through your veins. That's the kind of confidence He wants us to come to have just simply be able to trust Him with everything. Everything! That's our goal. We may not be there yet, but we need to get there. We get worried when we have health problems. We get worried when we have wealth problems. We get worried when we have children problems. All kinds of problems that we worry about. God said, turn to me with all your heart and I'll take care of your problems. Turn loose the branch. Anybody else up there? We've heard it over and over. Trust him. David learned to. We need to do the same. Let's see, where do I want to go next here? Chapter 15, verse 16. Better is little with the fear of the eternal than great treasure and trouble therewith. We're better off poor and trusting and fearing God than we would be with all the wealth of this world and the trouble it brings. 
15.33. The fear of the eternal is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. You know, it takes humility to discard our own feelings and emotions and way of thinking and doing things and say, okay, God, I'll submit to your way of thinking and doing things. It is our vanity, our pride, our ego, our selfishness, our self-centeredness that makes us want to go any way other than God's way. And it's in every one of us clear up to here. We have to get rid of that and say humbly before God, my desires, my flesh, my mind want to take me here, there, somewhere else. But I will submit to yours because I know it has to be better in the long run. And that takes humility to do that. Not to be stiff-necked, stubborn, and rebellious and have to do things our way. Frank Sinatra did it his way, and he's now dead and rotting, as has every other human being who has ever lived. But the humble and the meek, who entrusted everything to God, are going to be resurrected to life, happiness, and peace forevermore. There is a solution to the problems. Chapter 16, verse 6. By mercy and truth, Iniquity is purged, and by the fear of the eternal, men depart from evil. They swallow that vanity and ego and pride and turn to God, depart from evil, and life gets better. That's the way it is. Then they don't fear, they don't fight bad consciences, they don't second-guess themselves, they become bold as a lion. Chapter 19, verse 23. The fear of the eternal tends or points toward life. He that has it shall abide satisfied. He shall not be visited with evil. If you fear God, things are going to start happening that lead in the right direction in your life, that lead to happiness and peace and contentment and security. How hard it is to trust God, let's say, with a health problem. And we go to the solution someone else might offer. And sometimes we wrestle in our lives when things come up such as that. And one time, we, oh, maybe I better leave this in God's hands. And then, well, I don't know, maybe I better go have an operation or whatever. And sometimes... Those people can help us. But wouldn't it be neat if you came to the point where you could just turn your life over to God and know, be confident, down to your toenails, that He would take care of you. That takes growth. It takes some up and down. It takes successes and failures. It takes everything that we experience in life. And the trials, troubles, and tribulations that get laid on us sometimes are those things that teach us, well, 
It'd be better just to trust God. But we fear. We fear death. We fear dismemberment. We fear uh, loss. We fear all kinds of things. It's so hard for us just to turn it over to God. Leave it in His hands. That is a relationship that has to be built, and it doesn't come easy. Let's wrap this up today in Ecclesiastes 12. And pick it up in verse 13 then. Now, Solomon here has talked about the troubles and difficulties in life and how he had gone one way and gone another way and and trusted in himself. and uh, He's just looking at life from a carnal standpoint, basically, in this book. If I do this and this happens, I do that, something else happens. And He said, let us hear here the conclusion of the whole matter. Let's sum life up. The troubles, trials, difficulties of it, and what it's all about. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole of man. Not just the duty of man, as my Bible has in in uh, italics. It isn't really in there. This is the whole of man. Fear God and keep His commandments, and you become a whole man. Your life is fulfilled. It works. It solves the problems of life. So he was an old, jaded, frustrated king at this point in his life. He had been obedient to God early in life and looked to God, and then he wound up very, very wealthy, had a thousand women at his call, He had everything, he tried everything there was to try. Solomon did it all. There was nothing you can try that Solomon had not done. Nothing. And when he got through with that, he realized that he had lost that freshness, that closeness, that emotional thing that he had had as a young man with God. And he was old and tired and weak and frustrated. Life had no meaning for him anymore. So he looked back on all that. He said, you know, when I look back, there's only one thing you can do that is going to make you at the end of life happy. Fear God. Keep His commandments. This is the whole man. This is what completes you. This is what makes life right. This is what works. I tried all the other. It didn't work. And as I look back, the happiest times in my life were when I feared and obeyed God, not when I was doing what I thought would make me happy. That's what he's drawing together in this verse. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing whether it be good or whether it be evil. You can't hide from God. He is the one who makes the final judgments. He is the one that can bring peace and happiness to you if you serve Him and make your life a good experience. Or if you go the other way, you can wind up a frustrated old person as Solomon was. Did he get over it? 
I don't know. He had done so much that ruined his true emotions and feelings. All he could do was look back in sadness and say, I sure wish I'd have done it a different way. So you can be self-directed if you want to be, and you can do it your way. But I'll guarantee you, if you go that way, you're going to wind up frustrated, miserable, and unhappy, and wish you'd done it a different way. Because to fear God and keep His commandments will give you a complete, wholesome, wonderful life.